Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Don't Miss This Podcast, a Come Follow Me study with Emily Bell Freeman and David Butler. We fill this show up with all the things we think you don't want to miss in the scriptures every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. I'm David Butler. I'm Emily Freeman. This is Don't Miss This. We're so glad that you're here. You have found us. Oh, I couldn't see like the, you guys, we have the jankiest setup of a mirror so we can make sure that it's recording the whole time because what if it stops halfway through then? Catastrophe. So that's why I just got thrown off for just a second, but I can see it. We're good. Welcome. Okay. We go through the scriptures on this podcast. If it's your first um, week with us, welcome. You've jumped into the summer with us. We're doing something we call the Summer of Heroes, where we're highlighting several people each week, um, different heroes and their lessons that we can just kind of um, look through and go back to newsletter or previous videos to kind of get a full explanation of, of what that yeah, is. Of what but. we're doing, but we're doing 44 heroes in between now and the beginning of August. We did five last week. We only have four today. We're making up because last week, Deborah's story and Gideon's were a little longer, but our goal is five minute lessons, one for every day, if that's how you want to use it, or all of them on Sunday, if you want, but kind of a little bit shorter, just so you can keep up over the summer. We might have to move to seven minutes. Oh. I, you know, just seven's a number of wholeness and completeness. You love this. This is David at the beginning of every video. This is going to be a short one. And then (laughs) we come and look at the end and it's like an hour and 20 minutes. And I'm like, you don't even know how to tell time. It is true. It was my hardest unit in third grade math. (laughs) When when do you learn how to tell time? I don't even know. (laughs) Okay. Let's get the timeline out so that we show you where we're at. Now we're going to trick you a little, but don't be alarmed. We have two that go on this week in spot number 24. So we're coming off of the book of Judges from last time. And we are going to be talking about one of the grandmothers of Jesus, Ruth. All the grandmothers have a similar little kind of picture. And we're going to be talking about her story today. And then we're going to spill into the beginning of Samuel's story. And we're only talking about his mom today, Hannah. Um, And next week, we're going to tell this story of the scripture that's actually on this um, timeline piece. Yeah, lots of ladies today. So you are going to be so happy. All the ladies and one dude. Wise women are who we are going to meet today. Okay, so we're jumping into the the book of Ruth, which is, um, man, it is such a really, really good book. And let's Um, talk about this before you get all into the story. But if you're doing the tip-ins with us, Um, You'll want to put your tip-in of Ruth in today. And we love what we're going to learn about Ruth on these tip-ins. It just reminds us. So when you're in Matthew and you want to remember, oh, wait, who were those four ladies again? And what was their story? That Ruth is a widow. She's an outsider outside of the covenant. She's an immigrant. And then it just gives you a little highlight of the lesson of her story, which we're going to dive into today. So by the time we're done, you'll have all four grandmothers marked permanently in your scriptures with the tippins. Okay. One thing I really love about this book is it's really kind of a charming book. Mm. Like it's full of friendship and, and a little romance. (laughs) Um, It's got, it's got some has a happy ending. Happy ending. Yeah. Mm. It's actually like, I was thinking about this this morning. It's sort of similar to the book of Esther in a way. Mm. Esther is this really big epic story. 
you know, the, like a fairy tale type level, yeah. you know? And Ruth's story is sort of like just among the peasants almost yeah. story. You love what Alfred Adersheim said about oh. her. He says this, it's a book devoted to the domestic history of a woman who was a stranger to Israel. Yeah. And it's just a simple life, a simple girl. Yeah. Just living the best she could. So it feels like it's a call to God working in the normal, mm. in the ordinary. You know, like you would think, of course she's going to be there for the big battle. Of course she's going to be there for the kingdom and those yeah. stories. And I don't want to neglect his influence in those, but this book is sort of just to call out to those who feel like, I live in the in the little village, you know, and yeah. how God is still at work in our in our stories, particularly when they start out looking like tragedies and we think he's abandoned our story, mm. um, that in the end you find out he's been working through it all along. Yeah. So and there's a- so many really awesome things as you read through here, so many um, themes that we're not going to get into because we're going to dive into the heroes yeah. and give you your five-minute lesson, but just... Because we only have four this week, today we're kind of going to tell you a little bit about the book of Ruth. And a couple things that you want to know is, first of all, the symbolism of return or turn again, which is a definition of repentance, actually can be found 12 times in this story. So Mm. don't you love the idea of that, of that return and um, that there's a good lesson that can be learned from that. Another way I love to study the book of Ruth is to look for how empty goes to full and what you learn about God's character as you watch that process through this story. So just as you're reading the whole book, you might want to be thinking about those couple of things. Okay, our number one hero, our first hero, (laughs) our number one, (laughs) uh, our first hero this week is who the book's named after in its Ruth. Um, you, it starts off with a family that lives in Bethlehem, a, a mom whose name is Naomi and her husband and her two sons. And there's a famine in Bethlehem. So they actually move into Moab. And Moab is actually an enemy country to Israel. But they just have to go live there to try and find work and food. And when they get there, the two sons actually marry these two Moabite women. One of them marries Ruth and the other one marries a girl named Orpah. It's not Oprah. Don't get confused, right? And they marry these two women. And um, what happens is the dad of the family dies, leaving Naomi a widow. And then the two sons die right after that. It's a really, really tragic, heartbreaking. And they all die really close to each other in age. And neither of the two couples had any children. And so now you've just got this widow Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah and Naomi decides I'm moving back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to Israel. I'm old. I, 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 I'll just die there. I just, that's what I'm going to do. And she says to the two girls, you had no kids. Yeah. You're still young. You're still young. And, and you absolutely do not want to move into Israel with me. The, the Moabites, you remember, we saw them in, in the book of Judges. There is, a, there is a nasty history between Israel and Moab. And Israelites kind of look down on Moabites. They see them as like a lower class human. They just, you, if you come into Israel, she says to him, you will have a horrible life. So go on, live the rest of your life here. And one of the daughters, Orpah, said, daughter-in-law says, okay, yeah, that's actually a good idea. I should probably do that. And, and she goes off. But Ruth, you find out, um, stays. And she says to Naomi, 
I'm not going to let you go back to that place by yourself. Who's going to take care of you? Who's going to, who's going to work? Who's going to like make sure you're healthy and fine? Like your husband's gone, your sons are gone. Like, what are you going to do? There's still remnants of a famine back there. And you and- love too, the, the two girls obviously loved her. Yeah. Because you love that one part in verse 14 where it just says when she's telling him this, they lifted up their voice and just wept and they kissed each other. And I love that that is who she was, yeah. you know, that they just, she was beloved of those two girls and one chooses to return to her home and, and Ruth is going to make a different choice. But you love that she's, there's something about Naomi that was, um, she just, Loved those girls. Yeah, yes, yeah. so all of them together. They had a really unique bond with yeah. each other, and and maybe in part it's because they they carried tragedy together yeah. with each other, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's sort of like knit their hearts together. And and or Naomi says to Ruth, "Your sister went back. Just go back with her." And then verse sixteen is one of the most famous verses mm-hmm. in all the world. It's quoted actually every um, Christian wedding on planet Earth. <laughs> And Ruth says, entreat me not to leave you or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. And she is making a choice here to give up a really comfortable, familiar, uh, ambitious life for one that she knows is going to be less than, to go into a foreign place to learn about a foreign God, to be among people who aren't going to like her. And who knows what they're even happening. She has her, she has her whole family. She can just go back to here. Yeah. So it's going to be this like adventure, almost courageous adventure. And then she says, wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Um, and, and this is our line about her. It comes from verse 18 that we love so much about Ruth. Cause it says, when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. That's kind of Naomi's thought. When she saw how determined Ruth was to go with her, she was like, okay, then, then you can. Um, and we love that idea about Ruth and the, and the idea of to be steadfastly minded, particularly to be steadfastly minded in doing good. Mm, it's so good. So now we're going to move to our next hero. We put this up in between. So Andy, our guy who helps us, can know. We're moving on to the next hero. Um, This is going to be Naomi. So what happens is they travel to Bethlehem together. And when they finally get to Bethlehem, all the city is moved about them. And everyone is like, wait, is this Naomi? Did she come back? Now it's interesting because Naomi's name can mean, um, my God is, um, oh, her husband's name meant Elimelech. My God is king. Naomi's name means my God is sweet, Mm. which don't you love that about both of them? Yeah. But when she comes back, everyone is like, wait a minute, is this Naomi? Is she coming back? And she immediately says to them in verse 20, don't call me Naomi anymore or what is pleasant or what is sweet. I want you to call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. And she says, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord brought me home empty again. And um, why would you call me Naomi when you see that the Lord testified against me and that the Almighty hath afflicted me? And so she returned and Ruth with her and they returned out of Moab and they come back into Bethlehem. And this is the beginning 
of harvest time. And I love the thought of that in this story mm. because it's also going to be the beginning of what will eventually become a harvest for these ladies. So we have to pause in Naomi's story now, because if I tell you the end, it's going to be a big spoiler alert. <laughs> so you're going to hold, you're just going to pause on Naomi, right? We're leaving her in this moment where she's just bitter and she's no longer sweet anymore. And her life is hard and she is empty. Um, and we are going to move to Boaz. Boaz. So when they move into Bethlehem, Ruth and Naomi together, um, I just love that it is harvest time because it's like, Every time I read this, I'm like, oh, it just so happens to be harvest time when they move. Yes. And they just so happen to pick the fields of a man named Boaz, who is this wealthy landowner. And there is an Israelite law that we got back in Deuteronomy, and it's a gleaning law is what it is. And when you owned a bunch of land, you left the corners and the edges for um, anybody who was without and for the poor and the afflicted. And, and if you didn't get all the wheat off the stock, if you left any or any fell on the ground also, you had to leave that. And then anyone who wanted could come after the field had been harvested, the first harvest, and could come through and pick up the, the, the leftovers, gleanings. the extra. And you couldn't, if you dropped it, you couldn't pick it up under the law. And it was a law that really was designed for this very purpose, for this social justice yeah, purpose. Yeah, for someone right? like Ruth yeah. or Naomi. So Ruth just happens to pick the field of Boaz to glean from, and she's gleaning. And on that day, Boaz just happens to show up to see how you know all the work is going and everything he's talking to his workers. This is all in chapter two. And, and he sees them working, and, and he says like, and then he sees Ruth, and he's like, oh, well, who's that damsel is what it says, you know? Now, normally, like, it's widows who are picking up, like, the, you know, so yeah. you know, this is a young girl, you know? And she's a Moabite woman, you know? And, and so he immediately senses um, a couple things. One, he senses danger for her, and he's going to call all of his servants to make sure, like, nobody's allowed to touch that woman. Nobody's allowed to interfere with her life and her work because he knows what people can be like to foreigners. And, well, and she's so young. Yeah. And most of the women would probably have not been... As young. Yeah. Yeah, as her. There. And so, and then he calls her in and he actually says to her, I just want you to take from any spot of this, of my fields. Like you don't have to glean and pick up any of the leftovers. You just take whatever you need and wherever. Now, he found out her story a little bit because, you know, he did a little, mm -hmm. you know, he looked her up on Instagram just <laughs> to kind of stalk her and see what was happening. And he finds out... <laughs> you know, what had happened in Moab and that she stayed with her mother-in-law and he was so impressed that she was so willing to give up her life and give up her future for her mother-in-law that he's now showing her all of this, this kindness and, and taking care of her right away. And it's interesting, there's this question, it's up in Ruth's spot where it says, where have I, have I found grace? And that's, that's kind of a, what we're gonna associate with Boaz. So that's in chapter two. And after he'd showed all this kindness to her, she says in verse 10, she fell on her face and she bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, which just gives you a sense mm -hmm. of how overly generous he was being to her, that it would cause that kind of reaction. And she says, why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou should take knowledge of me seeing I am a stranger? Um, and not just a, someone you don't know, but somebody from... That word means an outsider, an immigrant coming from some other place. And um, we just love this idea that Boaz 
gives her that grace. So that's our line for him from that verse is to give grace. Like that's what we want to learn from Boaz's story because he sees her and he, and, he, and he responds to her need, not to what was different about her. Like that's his immediate thought when he sees her. He's like, what does she need? Not how is she an outsider? How is she different? How is she not like me? But rather his very first question when he sees this person is what does she need? And he responds to it with such generosity and with such kindness and comfort. And she actually says that to him in a couple of verses later. She says, um, Boaz answers, says, I've heard everything about you in 13. She says, let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast comforted me and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like one of your other handmaids. So, Maybe today we can learn from that lesson from Boaz to give that grace. And sometimes that grace looks like comfort. And sometimes it looks like friendship. And sometimes it looks like generosity. And always it looks like responding to what someone needs rather than their social status or what makes them different or, or anything like that. So we just love this idea of Boaz. And, and this book actually introduces really well a concept of, of a redeemer. You're going to find out in, in a second, Ruth goes home and tells Naomi with a you know, handful of all the wheat. And she's like, whoa, you glean good, girl. And then she's just like, oh, no, I actually met this guy. His name is Boaz. And he was really, and she's like, wait, wait, what was his name? Boaz? <laughs> like, I know What's him. his dad? What's his dad's yes. name? You know? I'm like, oh, my goodness. He is our family redeemer. You're going to see this all throughout chapter three. And under Israelite law, if somebody or custom, if somebody's husband died, then the next closest kinsman would then marry that woman. Um, one, so that she could own land. Two, so she could have a family again. And three, so that she could have children and be and be taken care of. Within the, the family covenant, the right. family promise. Yeah. And so that was a law that there were these family members called redeemers. And they would restore you back to your previous life. They would give you your land, family, and 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 future back to mm. you and so that's why she's gonna be so excited because she's like oh my gosh what a nice guy and then she finds out oh, he's actually our family redeemer yes so you gotta be flirty with him tomorrow <laughs> you, you know <laughs> wait a minute isn't there another one that is in line for the really being the redeemer yeah. he's the second place he she doesn't know that yet and yeah. so when ruth goes to boaz and actually says Listen, this is a little forward of me, but um, will you help our situation? Will you be our redeemer? She proposes to him, essentially. And then he says, there is actually somebody else in line before me, so I'd have to get their permission. permission. And, and, then, um, and he does. But don't worry, it all works him. out. That's just, that's just making sure we have a good Drama. Romance. Yeah, you have to have like a... Yeah. Like a problem that gets in the way. So we're going to now come back to Naomi's story again, so... Back to Naomi, our second hero. Did we say what his was? Yeah, give grace. Give grace. Yeah. And so here's what you love about his. I want to just pick up right there for just a minute, and then I'm going to take us to the very end. But you remember Naomi in 121 says, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And that is what she feels. It's just that emptiness. And I think we've all had moments in our life like that. This might be an empty moment for you. And I love that right at the very get-go, 
you can watch the Lord is going to replace that emptiness with fullness. We see it in that first conversation with Ruth and Boaz when he says, it's been fully showed to me what you have done. And then in verse 12, he says to Ruth, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. And I love that there is this hint of this reward that's going to come. And you love that when he's telling his workers in the field, when Ruth comes, you just let her have whatever she needs to from here. And it, his grace went well above what was required by law. Mm. And I love that that's what we know about Boaz is that's yeah. what kind of grace that he had. So that he not only followed what the laws of the Lord were, but that he was willing to go be above and beyond. Yeah. Like, and, and he didn't hide behind, you know, the justification yes. of like, why I did what I was expected to do. Yes. Like I did it. Yeah. So, but, but he rather was like, that, I trust your obedience plus a little bit more. Right. Right. That he just has that. I just love, I'm really in love with that word of generosity. Yeah. You know, to yes. take care of people in a abundant kind of way. Yeah. And which is what God does, right? And yeah. you love that thought of his grace is abundant like that. That's just how it is. So a little bit later in chapter four or in chapter three, there is um, the moment, the morning after the proposal, she's going to go back to her mother-in-law and um, tell her what happened and I love that Boaz says, when you go back to your mother-in-law, what I want you to take is six measures of barley mm. when you go back. Because he says to her, go not empty to your mother-in-law. And don't you love that Boaz doesn't just see the need of Ruth, but he also recognizes the story of Naomi. Mm -hmm. That he just, he sees the whole big picture of what is happening. So what happens is they end up, getting married and they're going to have a baby. And what happens at the end of the story is Naomi's story is going to come full circle because remember she left, she comes back to Bethlehem. She says, why are you calling me Naomi? Naomi, call me Mara because I'm so bitter because I went out full and the Lord brought me back again, empty. And at the end, Ruth, um, bears a son in verse 13 of chapter four. And all those same women who saw her at the beginning and were like, wait a minute, is this Naomi? They come back and they say this, I'm just going to paraphrase this, but blessed be the Lord, which has not left thee this day without. Don't you love that? Mm. That he's like, he knew all along what he was going to do there with you. And she says, and they're talking about the baby, but I love thinking about Jesus at the same time. The one who's orchestrating the whole story, they say about this baby, he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life and a nourisher of thine old age because of your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to thee than seven sons mm. hath brought him to you. And don't you just love that sweet moment between Naomi and Ruth, but I love that thought of uh, you won't be left without, that he will come to you as a nourisher and a restorer. And that is true for all of us. So from Naomi's story, that's our invitation for you is to let him be a nourisher and a restorer in your life and then maybe become that for someone else in theirs. Yeah. And just to know that that is coming. It's like, because a lot of us might be in that chapter one or chapter two place right now where it's like, 
wait, it doesn't feel like God is moving and working mm. in my life. But all along, he, he has been like, she can look back and like, why did Ruth stay? Like, yeah. What inspired her to well, stay? And why, and why did I go did to Moab go? Yeah. in the first place? Right. And then, and why did we happen to come at harvest time? And why did we happen to come across Boaz? And why did he happen to be our, our kinsman? And why did his mom happen to raise him as a gentleman who's really generous? Yes. And, and all of these, all along, God's been working for this restoration. And it's kind of sweet that yep. it really happens in the city of Bethlehem. Yep. You know, because yes. it's just like a baby born in Bethlehem yes. became the restorer the, the and redeemer, the nourisher, the redeemer yes. of their story. Of their story. And remember, this is the grandma of um, Jesus. Yeah. And so it really, another baby really will come from that family who really will restore and nourish and redeem. I love too that Ruth is just this bright spot after Judges, which it was a book of so much going into wickedness. So it's just, it's just this sweet story right in the middle. And right. then we're going to go into Samuel. This will be our last hero. So we had Ruth who is steadfastly minded. We had Naomi who teaches us to let God be your restorer and nourisher and then be that for someone else. And then Boaz, we learn to give grace. And that might look like comfort, friendship, or generosity. And then we turn to the first book of Samuel. And we're going to meet Samuel, but it's not his turn yet because it's going to be Samuel's mom first. And we wanted to let her have her own story and be her own hero. So her name is Hannah. She will be our last hero for this week. And what happens is that she, um, in their home, there are two wives. There's Hannah and then Peninnah. Did I say that right? Peninnah? I just call her Penny. <laughs> and um, Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not have any children. She was barren. And her husband loved her so much. And he just took care of her. And he was like, "Let just find your joy in me. He was not worried that she couldn't have children. She was not less in his eyes because she could not have children, but it still weighed on her. Um, that's what she wanted. That yeah, is not the thing that she wanted to have. Yeah. And, and both personally and like culturally, it was considered like, it was a like considered a woman's responsibility to have children because yeah. it strengthened, especially sons, it strengthened yeah. the whole village. They could be more protected. They would have more wealth. Well, and, and then so, they would take care of her for the whole right. rest of her life. So and not just so, her personal wishes, although she surely had them, mm -hmm. but also there was a cultural expectation and pressure on it too, that she would have yeah. And it'd carried. be hard to fit in right. because her life was just different. And so um, year by year, she would go up to the house of the Lord. And every time they would go, her sister-in-law would remind her how she didn't have any kids. And so it tells us in verse seven, therefore she wept and she did not eat. And her husband said to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why are you not eating? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Like, am I not taking care of you? Am I not showing you? I appreciate you. Why are you so sad. And Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. And we love this word rise up, that thought of she rose up. And in Hebrew, that could be an idiom for meaning to take charge of that moment or to not be passive anymore, but to be active in that moment. And I love that it's almost as if she's like, I'm going to actually do something different than mm. I have done before. So Eli the priest sat on a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord 
And she was in bitterness of soul and she prayed unto the Lord and she wept sore. And I just love the thought of that. I love that they don't hold back with Hannah. They are going to show us her abundance of grief, whoever is writing this story and her hardship and the weight that she carries. And on this day, she's in bitterness of soul and she's weeping. And I love that she vows a vow to the Lord in verse 11 and says, if you will just look on the affliction of your handmaid and remember me and not forget me, but will just give me a man child, I will give him to you for the rest of the days of his life. Let me just know that promise of having a son. Yeah. I I don't even need to have him. I just, it's almost like, I just need to know you haven't forgotten about me. Yep. That was almost her request, you know, was like that reassurance. Yep. And then she speaks of that Nazarite vow that we talked about before with Samson's story. And there will not a razor come upon his head and he will be for the Lord all the days of his life. That's what I promise. And as she continued praying before the Lord, I love that Eli starts watching her mouth. And I, he probably sees her. He can sense that heavy burden. He sees her weeping and he just starts watching her mouth. And um, even though she was speaking in her heart, but her lips were moving and her voice was not heard. And Eli came over to her and, and he kind of was um, put off by what was happening in that moment. It tells us, he's like, is something wrong with you? Like, are you a crazy person or what, what is drinking? going on? Have you, Have been, you drinking? been drinking? <laughs> what is happening? And she said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk not wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. And we love that thought in this part of her story, that pouring out moment that sometimes there are times in our life when there's nothing else we can do, but just pour out our story to the Lord. I can remember when Megan was going through a really hard time in her life and She went to the bishop and he set up a series of appointments for her to come back and just check in with him. And he told her, every time you come, I will give you an assignment and it'll be something you work on for one week. And then when you come back, I will give you the next thing. And when she came home the first week, I said to her, what, what is your assignment for this week? And she said, it's to pour out. I'm just supposed to pour out my soul. The bishop said, just pour out your soul for a week. That's all I'm supposed to do. And Mm. I love um, that there is a lesson in that, that there is a process in that, that it's, it's important. And Hannah lets us know how important it is. And she said, out of the abundance of my grief, have I spoken? And there is just that moment that she doesn't hide it. She doesn't try and pretend like everything is fine. And she may on other days, but in this one moment, she goes to the temple And she just pours out Mm. um, to the Lord what is happening. And Eli says to her, go in peace. And the God of Israel will grant you your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, just let me find grace in your sight. So the woman went her way and she did eat. And I love this in verse 18. And her countenance was no more sad. Mm. Like, don't you love that she was like, okay, I have poured out. I have petitioned the Lord. I have listened to his prophet. And now it's almost as if she is doing that. I'm going to live as if. Mm. I'm just going to live Mm. as if. And I love in verse 19, this is one of my favorite phrases that we see every so often in scripture. And the Lord remembered her. 
and she is going to have this baby whose name will be Samuel. And she names him that because she has asked him of the Lord. And, um, she took, um, she was going to bring that baby eventually, and he's going to go and live forever. And I just, I want you to, um, live forever with Eli. Sorry. (laughs) He's going to live forever with Eli. And I want to tell you just two more parts of the story that I love. First of all, in verse 26, when she brings her boy to Eli and she says, Oh my Lord, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he will be the Lord's and she's going to leave that baby to be raised up in that house. But this is one of my favorite parts of her story. She will have other children. That is what's going to happen. She will have other children and she will bring him back to that place. And every year she comes and she sees Samuel. And you love when you read in verse 19 of chapter two, moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Like who wrote that in there? Don't you wonder? I just love that everyone is like, listen, it's super important for all of you to know that every year his mom made him a coat and she brought it up to him and she loved him. And there was still that relationship there. But one of the other things I love about Hannah's story is in verse eight, seven and eight, when she's bearing her testimony of this experience of what has happened to her. And she says, Um, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. And what you want to watch for there are these words that talks about the poor being rich and the low lifted up, that the poor and the beggar are going to become princes and obtain these thrones. And this is a form of language that is called a merism. And it's where you take two words of extremes and put them next to each other. And the reason why you would do that is to show that God recognizes both of those extremes on the scale, but also everything in between. Mm. And don't you love that she's like, I've experienced an abundance of grief. Like that is an extreme. But I've also experienced an abundance of joy. And God was in everything in between. And as we think about Hannah, I love the thought of thinking about her pouring out moment, but also that moment of fullness and just knowing that the Lord was in every single part of it, that he was there in the when her abundance of grief but also there in her abundance of joy and everywhere in between. Yeah, and, and it just is neat to think about coming off, especially that story of Ruth and Naomi right before, and that idea of her saying like, oh, I'm empty. And then at the end of her story, you know, being filled. But it actually was the emptiness that led to the events that filled her up, if that makes sense. It's like, well, duh, that's obvious. But when we pour out, 
everything and we're left empty. That is what God can actually fill. Yeah. And it was like where you look at the story and it was like, it was the famine that led them into Moab in the first place. And it was, it was the death in the families that led to that relationship being so close to each other. And it was the deaths that also led to them moving mm-hmm. back to Bethlehem. And it was, you know, the fact that she was a gleaner that yeah. led to Boaz senior. And it really, it really was like, cause it would be really easy for a person to say, well, I have no children or I don't have a job or I don't have, or I've lost someone mm-hmm. as evidence that the Lord isn't there. But in those stories, we see that that's exactly where he was working and moving was yeah, in and those places. I love places. that thought of that, that if you are in that empty place, if you're in that pouring out in that abundance of grief that maybe you are creating a cavity that the Lord is preparing to just fill up overflowing, right? Just, I love Can you when, just use another word besides cavity? Because you just felt like a dentist. Like, I don't want to get a cavity. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love the thought that that aching sometimes feels so big. Yeah, it you creates know? a space. Yeah, yeah. it creates it a space. That, that, yeah, space. it carves out a space that is so big. And then, um, and, and it is abundant that grief is, but then I love that. So is the joy also Mm. abundant in the end, because that's who God is and that's how he works. And in those empty moments, we can live in expectation of a fullness to come because that's who he is. That's what he does. Yeah. A restoration. And did we talk about this question? I can't even remember there at the very end, but no, let's talk about it. If not, if we didn't, why can we not remember? Um, there's a question of the journal. What restoration are you longing for? What is it that you are, what is it that you need? And just to realize that not to be afraid of those and not to take them as evidence that God doesn't care, but as an opportunity to pour out and carve out space for him to do his work and to fill you. Mm. So. So good. Okay. See you next week. This audio was taken from a YouTube video from our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube at Don't Miss This. Also, sign up for our newsletter at don'tmissthisstudy.com and you can follow us on Instagram at Emily Bell Freeman and at Mr. Dave Butler. Thanks for listening. Bye.